Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. Hear now the word of God. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos, word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. Her feet, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. My friends, this is now the second of a three-part series on this particular portion of Revelation 9.20, Christ among the lampstands, in which John, the Apostle John, encounters Christ in the midst of the seven lampstands or candlesticks. Now our text for today presents for us a very graphic vision of Christ, a description of his majesty, his rule, his glory, his judgment. We have noted already that there are twin emphases in this wonderful book but mysterious book of Revelation. But there are two things, at least, 
But keep in mind, twin, twin focuses, twin foci, if you will, first of all, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, and we see it very clearly here. And so he's all throughout this book, and here at the very beginning, towards the very beginning of this book, he is portrayed in this wondrous, amazing way. And so Jesus Christ, but then secondly, his church, his church, the people of God, in union with him, united with him suffering with him, as we will see, as the martyrs later will cry from the altar, O Lord, how long? How long? Indeed. That was the cry in the first century. It's the cry in the 21st century. O Lord, how long? Suffering for the cause of Christ. But if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. And so the church, at the end, victorious, not because of its own goodness, not because of its own merits, not because of its own works, but because of the work of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Now, chapter 1 is setting the stage, as we noted last week. It, first of all, is setting the stage in terms of what kind of a Savior is he. What kind of a Savior is he? And again, we're going to be looking at this very uh, very closely in just a few moments. But then also, what should be the character of the church? What should be the character of the church? And, you know, from church history, from theology, we know that the church has various characteristics. It is holy. Of course, we know this primarily from Scripture, but these ideas have been developed historically we know the church is holy. That is to say, it is called not just, not just to be morally pure, but fundamentally it is separated. It is called out of the world and called unto God. It is holy. It is also one and Catholic. Catholic with a small c, of course. Not Roman Catholic, but Catholic in the sense of universal. That's what the word Catholic means, universal. And being one and universal, one and Catholic, it means that the church has the same experience, the same basic experience. Now, all of us here, we, if we were to relate, we would have, in one sense, different experiences in terms of particulars. But one experience spiritually would be characteristic of all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. That is to say, we've all been converted. Well, we've all been called, first of all, by God. We've all been converted. We've all been regenerated, born again by the Holy Spirit. We've all come to an acknowledgement of our sin. We've been convicted of our sin. So we have turned by repentance from our sin unto Christ. We all have faith in Christ. We've all been justified based upon Christ's imputed righteousness. We have all been sanctified. We've been set apart for his service. We've all been adopted as the sons and daughters. Even as he says, as John says here in verse 9, both your brother and companion, we've been adopted into the same family, the family of God. And of course, someday we will be glorified. And so it is one and Catholic. It is also faithful in testimony 
even unto death. Again, verse 9, tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. It is word-based, not experience-based. That is to say, we, we are based upon, founded upon the word of God, not upon our experiences. And it is spirit-filled, the spirit of God. As he says here in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And then it is distinctive, again, as we see in terms of Sabbath observance. So, these are the twin focuses, the twin emphases. Christ and his very distinct church. So as we look now at this passage, last week, you remember, we, we saw how John hears. John hears, verses 9 through 11. We have a description of John. He doesn't identify himself as an apostle or the one who leaned on Jesus' breast, although those things are certainly true. He's very humble in his description here. He was in exile. He was sent into exile by the Roman Empire for his being a religious troublemaker, that is to say a follower of Christ, for the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. But notice also what John hears he hears this loud voice as of a trumpet. Not a trumpet, but it's as of a trumpet. It's got that sort of uh, piercing sound to it. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. But you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. We would say today southwestern Turkey. And there we mention those seven churches. And as we'll come into chapters 2 and 3, we will see letters written to each of those seven churches. So first of all, just to remind us, John hears. But he not only hears, but John sees. John sees. John, the apostle, verse 12, turned to see the voice that was speaking with him. I imagine that's what you and I would do, too. We have, hear a voice that sounds like a trumpet. It's going to get our attention, and we're going to stop, and we're going to turn in that direction. So John, first of all, has heard, but now John is going to see. And what does he see? Well, seven lampstands or candlesticks. Now, what's interesting here is that these lampstands or candlesticks are images out of the tabernacle. They are images out of the tabernacle uh, in the Old Testament. The tabernacle is like a big tent, and it was the meeting place of God with his people. And so you had in the Old Testament all of these very interesting things, the, these pictures all throughout the book of Revelation. And let me just pause here a moment and mention the fact that what you have here are these pictures. They're not intended, this is like a vision. They're not intended to be, this is not intended to be applied literally. Remember, this is a picture book here in Revelation. Not only do we have seven lampstands, 
but we also will have the burning of incense. We don't burn incense in church today, do we? We don't have special lighting anymore. We don't, we don't burn candles like you see in some churches. Later on, there will be the reference to various musical instruments. We don't employ musical instruments in church anymore, do we, in the New Testament? Because we, those, all of those things have been fulfilled in Christ. And so we have this imagery then of the tabernacle. And what's interesting here as well is notice why lampstands, why candlesticks? Well, because of the importance of light. The importance of light. Now as individuals, we shine as light in the midst of of a crooked and twisted or perverse generation, Philippians 2, verse 15. But the church corporately, the church as a body, the church as an institution, serves also to enlighten the world. Is this not what Jesus said in Matthew uh, chapter 5? Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, right after the uh, Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says in verse 14, you, or ye, are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now that's certainly true in terms of us as individuals, but it is also true of the church as an institution. How does the church do that? How is the church a light to the, to the nations, to the world? Well, first of all, through the preaching of the word. It's by the very preaching of the word, in thy light shall we see light, Psalm 36. And so in the reading of the word and in the preaching of the word, here, then, you have light given to the world. But also by means of righteous living. By means of righteous living. We, as believers in Jesus Christ, of all people, should be the most ethical and the most moral. And so by means of righteous living. But also by the power and work of the Holy Spirit. Even as John said back in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I was in the Spirit. I was caught up, as it were. It's because the Spirit, you see, was empowering me for that service of worship, but the Spirit also empowers us to live lives that are pleasing to God. Notice also the significance of more than one lamb. In other words, it's not just one, is it? It's seven. And uh, it seems to me that one of the things that is being emphasized there is that there are many groups, there are many ethnic groups now. So it's not just one, you've got seven. There is spiritual unity in Christ, and so you've got a plurality of these candlesticks. The number seven obviously corresponds to the actual number of churches that are mentioned, but it is also a symbol of the entire church, seven being the number of perfection. 
But children, did you notice one other thing? Besides the fact that these are seven in number, did you notice what else they were? They were golden. They were made of pure beaten gold. You see, the church is extremely precious. It is extremely precious. It is precious to God. And so it is pictured here then in terms of gold. But gold is also a symbol of purity. And so the church must be pure in doctrine and in life. False doctrine is impure. We are indeed called to a holy life as well as to holy doctrine. So, we have the seven lampstands, and then what John sees, but he also sees something else. He sees the Son of Man. Now, he says here in verse 13, he sees one like unto the Son of Man. This is his title here. Son of Man was the most common term which Jesus used to speak of himself. It was the most common way he would refer to himself as the Son of Man. Now, at least two things are indicated by this. And the thing I think that we first consider, we, that first comes to mind when we hear the word Son of Man, we think of his humanity. We think of the fact that he is truly human as well as truly God. He's truly divine. He's truly God, but he's also truly man, and so he's called the Son of Man. That is certainly true. But when you read how this term is, how this phrase is used in the Old Testament, you see the Son of Man also points to the exaltation of Christ, an exaltation which comes by means of humiliation. So the one who took on the one who is the Son of Man the one who took on human flesh, is going to be exalted after he goes to the cross. He's going to be crowned. He's going to be declared to be the Son of God with power, as Romans 1 says. But that declaration, that exaltation of Christ will only come through the cross. There is no crown for him without the cross. Matter of fact, we see this, and we've, we've read this before, but I'll mention it again. In Daniel chapter 7, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. In Daniel 7, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. We also see then in Daniel chapter 10, in Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, we also see another reference to what we have here in Revelation 1. Daniel 10, I lifted my eyes and looked. So Daniel looked, Daniel sees, and behold, a certain man 
clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. Well, children, that sounds very much like what we just read in Revelation 1, doesn't it? It sounds very much like that. And so we see then how in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 10, we have a a revelation of Christ, and now here in Revelation 1, we also have a revelation of him. So, what is his clothing? It is that of a garment, pointing to the fact that he is our great high priest. But notice that this garment extends all the way to the feet. You know what that shows? It shows that his work has been completed. The work of sacrifice has ended. And yet, at the same time, by appearing as the priest, it's pointing to the fact that he is the one who was sacrificed at the cross. It points to the one who made the once-for-all sacrifice, who offered himself, who offered his blood for us at the cross. We see not only the garment, but also the golden girdle, or the, uh, the uh, girded about the chest with a golden band. Again, a sign of splendor and majesty. But notice not only his clothing, but his appearance. His head. His head. It was white. It was dazzlingly so. It was like white wool. Now, children, have you ever gone out on one of those rare occasions here in Georgia where it snows? Yeah. And you know what? And you know, think about that a minute. And so you look, you go out and you look at the snow. And you can't even look at it, can you, when the sun is shining? It's so dazzlingly, overwhelmingly bright. That's the picture you have here. That's how Jesus is being portrayed. And so it's like snow, which hurts the eyes to look at. This is pointing to Jesus' purity and glory, but also pointing to the one who is the Ancient of Days, in terms of not just his head, but also his hair. Also his hair. His head and his hair were white like wool. Now, I used to have darker hair. I used to have more hair, too, but I used to have darker hair. As you get older, what happens? Your hair starts to turn gray, and sometimes to turn white. And so this, again, is a picture to what we found in Daniel 7, referring to the one who is the ancient of days, referring to the fact that he is eternal, ultimately. He's eternal. He's the Ancient of Days. That's what's being pictured here. So you've got the dazzling, the, the dazzling nature of him, but also, it's not just his head, but it's also his hair that is white. But notice his eyes as well. They are like a flame of fire. Now, Young people, I'm sure that your mom at times 
has had eyes that flash lightning at you. Probably, right? Probably you've had that before. Or maybe someone else has been angry with you. Well, it's one thing for your mom or a friend or a brother or sister to look at you like that. But it is quite something else to have Jesus look at you like that. And so you see there, you have here not just the, the judgment, but more than that, the fact that he sees right through you. Now your mom has, has uh, eyes in the back of her head, right? So she sees a lot, but Jesus really sees everything. And he sees right into your very soul. He sees exactly what you are thinking right now. He sees exactly what you are thinking right now. And so these are the eyes then. The eyes. Like a flame of fire. Symbolic of his holy anger that burns up all his foes but also symbolic of the fact that he is omniscient. He knows all things. He sees right through us. But notice his feet. They're like burnished bronze, or we would say highly polished. So think of, a, think of a, some piece of metal that is highly polished. That's the way his feet were. His, you see, his ways are beautiful. Jesus is a beautiful Savior, but they are also firm and steady, and strong. As a matter of fact, notice where it says there, his feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. The word there is purao, which means, well, you know what pyrotechnics are? Those are fireworks. Pyrotechnics, fireworks. And so that same root word is here in terms of the fire, in terms of of having been refined in a furnace. When caused to glow in a furnace. Have you ever seen pictures of a steel mill? Have you ever seen that? Though that white hot liquid iron that is being turned into steel. And that's the picture that you have here. Refined. Refined in terms of, of uh, we, we could say, also red hot and glowing and ready for trampling down. But there's one other thing that he sees here, and that is his countenance or his face. His face. The countenance, that means his face. Notice at the end of verse 16, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. A few moments ago, we sang from Psalm 19, which talks about, which talks about um, the sun, remember? The sun that gets up in the east as it makes its circuit across, across the sky during the day. Have you ever gotten up early, maybe gone out like, my wife and I, several years ago, went out. We lived near Lake Michigan up in Wisconsin. And so we got up early to watch the sun come up, to pop up behind the, the watery horizon. And as it, as it came up, it was this bright, burning, 
beautiful but overpowering sun that was there. And you couldn't stand to look at it. You see, that's what is that's the picture that you have here of Jesus. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And so Jesus, John, sees the Son of Man, this ancient of days. But again, he also hears. Notice the voice of Jesus. It is like the sound of many waters. If you've ever been to a waterfalls, if you've ever been to uh, uh, Amicalola up in North Georgia, you start getting close to it, you can hear it. You can hear it. If you've ever, gone, ever been to Niagara Falls up in New York, you start getting close to it, you can hear it. Or as we sang from Psalm 93, that the Lord on high is mightier than the crashing waves of the sea. Remember John? Remember where he was uh, He was in exile? He was on the island of Patmos, a fairly small island. He would have heard the ocean. He would have heard those waves. And so here he says that Jesus then, the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, his voice was as the sound of many waters. This points to his great power, but it also points to the fact that he is truly God. There's one other thing then that he sees, that John sees, and that is the stars and the sword. So in the right hand, in Jesus' right hand, there are seven stars. Isn't that amazing? Seven stars like blazing suns. And they are in the right hand, the Ancient of Days. He upholds them. He upholds the church by his power and grace. These seven stars that will be identified as the angels of the seven churches. But also, there's one other thing, children. Did you notice it? Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now this is not a pretty picture, is it? This is not what we usually think of when we think of Jesus. And yet, he has this sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Because it is by the word of his power that he convicts and he brings men and women and boys and girls to repentance and faith. He slays us, as it were. He regenerates us by the power of his word, a sharp, two-edged sword. And yet, not only is this for our conversion, but it's two-edged. And so the sword is also there to slay to destroy all of his and our and the book of Revelation. To kill those, to destroy those who refuse to repent and who try constantly to destroy his church. 
And yet the church, at the end of the day, will be victorious. <coughs> well, it's kind of an over, overwhelming picture, isn't it? What John sees, can you imagine being in his sandals that day? We'll see, Lord willing, next week in terms of reaction as John submits. But here I want to apply this in three different ways. First of all, embrace the truth. Embrace the truth that there is only one Jesus Christ. Embrace the truth that there is only one Jesus Christ. Some of you may remember the old game show to tell the truth. And you'd have three contestants. One was the real person, John Doe or whatever. And the four, the four um, celebrities would try to guess who the real one was. And at the end of the, of the contest, after they had questioned these three, two of whom were imposters, the, um, uh, the guest would say, Bud Collier, whoever the guest would say, would the real John Doe please stand up? My friends, what we have here is the real Jesus Christ standing up. The real Jesus Christ is here in Revelation chapter 1. There are false pictures of Jesus. There are false pictures of Jesus all around us. There is the Jesus of Islam, which is a false picture of Jesus, believing that Jesus is merely just a prophet and not perfect and not actually the Son of God. There is the Jesus of liberalism, of liberal theology, which basically denies who Jesus Christ is. There is the Jesus who is portrayed merely as meek and mild. But what we see here in Revelation 1 is one aspect, one dimension that helps us to understand the true Jesus. Jesus is gentle and he is kind and loving. But without contradicting his meekness and love, and gen gentleness. My friends, he is also the judge king. He is also the ancient of days. He is also the one who is portrayed here with this overwhelming picture with head and hair white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. His voice is the sound of many waters with the seven stars in his right hand and out of his mouth going a sharp two-edged sword. That too is who Jesus is. And my friends, do you then have this view of Jesus? Or do you think of Jesus only as one who's there to give you what you want? Do you have this full view of who Jesus is? Not just meek and mild, but the mighty judge king, the mighty warrior. Do you have that view of Jesus? 
If not, your view is a false one and not the real one. Secondly, by way of application, have you submitted to his word? Have you submitted to his word? You see, the word from his mouth is a sharp two-edged sword, and it slays, it judges, it evaluates. Do you instinctively say amen to Christ's judgments, or do you cringe at them and reject them? Have you bought into the world standard, you see? Or are you submitting totally and completely and instinctively to Jesus' judgment and his that is brought by this double-edged sword? Do you embrace the conviction which Christ's word brings? And then finally, my friends, have you trusted in his finished sacrifice? Because you see, he is our priest, but he's a priest with the garment that goes all the way down. There's only one, a once-for-all sacrifice, which is at the cross. Have you trusted in his finished sacrifice? Or are you perhaps trusting in your own works? Or thinking God will accept you because you're so sincere? He won't. God will only accept you if you are trusting in this Jesus, this Christ, this ancient of days, this judge king, this prophet, this priest who laid down his life for us at the cross. May God give us all the grace to embrace him by faith. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And our Father, we pray that we might love this Savior. We pray, Father, we might love Him who is our Savior and Redeemer, the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so be pleased to accept us and accept our worship. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.